Today on The Full Life, stories of brokenness, parenting, and unconditional love. You won't want to miss these testimonies. And why is Jenny wearing a crown? (laughs) Find out after this. Different Christian perspectives coming together to have important conversations about our faith and help you live in the fullness of life God wants for you each and every day. This is The Full Life with Joseph Mancuso. Carolyn Pankella, Hank Johnson, and Jenny Stivale. Come join the conversation. And welcome everyone to another episode of The Full Life. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it is so impactful every week to hear people's testimonies from across the country and even around the world. And today's is going to be no different. I will tell you, you're going to be blown away. But first, as always, we want to invite you to follow us and engage with us online, whether it be through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, or even our audio podcast version. We have all those available to you. Like, share, comment, engage with us so we could be a part of your lives. Now, let's deal with that crown. In today's encouraging word, Jenny, why are you wearing that? Well, why am I wearing a crown? Well, because it's an opportunity to wear a crown and I'll take any opportunity. I was a pageant girl after all. This is actually a crown my husband gave me for my birthday uh, last year. But I am wearing a crown for a specific purpose. And that is because this month, the month of March, um, actually over the next week, we're celebrating in the Jewish calendar, the holiday of Purim. Purim has kind of been come to known as the Jewish Halloween, but it's so much more than that. It celebrates and commemorates the story of Esther. If you're not sure of the story of Esther, I encourage everybody to read it. If you've ever heard the term, the whole Megillah, that is the reading of Esther. Every uh, Purim, you get together, there's a day of fasting, then you read the story of Purim, and then there's a humongous feast and a party. Now, I'm wearing a crown to represent, of course, being Esther, and women wear crowns, and, and men will wear crowns, different crowns or different costumes, and this is a very festive time. But why is this a festive time? And what in the world does it matter to you? Well, the one thing I want to share with you that can have such a huge impact on your life is the fact that Esther, this book of the Bible, is the only canonical book of the Bible that doesn't mention God. Not once is God's name mentioned in this story. Now, the story is about the potential annihilation of the Jews. It's about a Jewish woman, Esther, Hadassah, who goes into uh, the, the uh, I almost want to say the castle, but the king's court. She becomes the queen. The people um, are, are persecuted by a man named Haman, and there's a potential annihilation. And you never once see God throughout all this. You never hear his name. And yet you see him fighting for his people. And I believe that is the purpose of the book of Esther, to remind us that sometimes we may not hear God. Sometimes we may not see God. Sometimes we may not even feel God. But Esther is a reminder that God is always working behind the scenes. Well, I think that your encouraging word today, Jenny, leads perfectly into our story today. And so I will introduce our guest now. Randy Hartley lives in Nashville, Tennessee, where he has been a financial planner for 38 years. He has been married to his wife, Darla, for 35 years, and they have three children, Alyssa, Andrea, and Nate. The challenges the Hartley family faced in the early 2000s ultimately led to this book, as well as Randy serving as an executive producer for the film Beautifully Broken and the documentary Through the Valley, the true story on which Beautifully Broken is based. 
He is also the chairman of the Legacy Mission Village, which we'll learn more about later. And I want to welcome now Randy Hartley. Welcome, Randy. Oh, thank you. It's hey, great Randy. to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, as I said to you before we started, it is really, really an amazingly compelling and, and a story that I just really, I went through it in a day because it was just so uh, compelling. Um, and it's really at its core a story about how kind of this convergence point where two family stories come together. Um, and maybe even three, if you if you read the book all the way through. So so I but I want to start with your family story and and what and what the background or your background and how the family's series of events led to that convergence point. Well, thanks for that introduction. And you're right, it is a story where these three lives got woven together in this almost divine tapestry that only God could create. But but my family, uh, it's pretty simple. I'm a financial planner. Never thought I'd be in the movie business or writing a book. Uh, I felt like my family was living the American dream with the wife, the three kids, the dogs in suburbia, and uh, things were just rolling right along until my middle daughter during her teen years started in this downward spiral, and the spiral kept getting darker and worse. And I've got an older daughter. She's got an older sister, and I don't know a dad who hadn't looked at a teenage girl every now and then and thought, who in the world are you? Uh, but for Andrea, my middle daughter, uh, it just got progressively worse to the point that we knew that something was desperately wrong and uh, reached a culmination when um, she, she didn't come home one weekend. And I was a dad driving around at three in the morning uh, looking for a 16-year-old daughter. And I'm going to tell you, if you've ever been a dad in that situation, it just doesn't seem like it could get lower than that. Um, that was our rock bottom. What what happened after that? I guess sure. let's start there. What yeah. happened after that and what did you learn? Finally, one Sunday about noon, I sent her one last text said, dear honey, we love you. Please come home and let mom and I help you. And I don't know why she turned her phone back on, but within 30 seconds, I got a note from her saying, you're right. I do need help and I'm coming home. So she came home and we took that crisis to be that final shove to put her in a 30 day program just to help her figure out what was going on. And about the third week there, my wife and I went out as we'd been doing with the family counseling and um, she handed us a letter and I've talked about it a hundred times, but it still gets me as a dad. Um, the letter basically told us that at age 12, she had been molested at a public park uh, in Brentwood at a 4th of July celebration. And um, that was crushing in many ways to hear. It at least explained the last four years to a degree, and it gave us a starting point. So uh, we went to intensive family counseling. One of the things I learned when you go through trauma like that, uh, the trauma is not just on the person who was uh, was directly impacted but it creates trauma for the whole family because mm -hmm. all of our emotional energy had poured into this one direction for four years. And what you don't realize is when all your emotional energy is going that one direction, I mean, it's hurting, you know, a husband wife relationship. It's hurting mm -hmm. you and your other children. It's hurting the siblings. And so I can't encourage enough. What you don't realize is the, the, the repair that's needed for the whole family unit. And we were blessed to have some great counselors that help us through that process. Um, do you ever look back and think, how could we have stepped in sooner? Like advice for parents that could say, you know what, this is what you need to spot sure. when your kid is spiraling, when things are coming like this. And then, you know, as a father, as a parent, how would you tell parents to kind of address this? How are you feeling leading up to this and, and going through this? Um, what I found out afterwards, that was 
that, that really just hit me to the core was when our daughter finally, after four years of this, finally revealed what had happened. The thing that just, just nailed me to the core was she said, I didn't tell anybody first. She thought she'd get in trouble. And second, she didn't want to disappoint her mother and me. And, and it's just crushing to think that a teenage girl is trying to hold on to the trauma is as traumatic as stranger molesting her would be is she didn't want to hurt us. And in hindsight, what I wish I had done is I wish we had approached her earlier and just let her know what was implied but not stated. And that is our love was unconditional, that nothing she could ever say would ever come between the love of us that we would have for her and to make it a more comfortable environment for her to say at 12 and 13, what she waited to say at 16. Um, because that darkness and evil that she held inside was like an acid. And for, for four years, the, the shame, which is the bridesmaid of evil was whispering in her ear that you're not worthy, that you're not good enough, that somehow it's your fault that, you have to hide this from people. And I think it's truly the devil keeping them in that dark spot where they have them, where they believe all those lies. You know, I first of all, just have to say thank you that you are willing to share this story because I think every time you share it, you're reliving it over and over again. And you can just feel your love for your daughter and the pain. And I think there's so many parents that are are feeling exactly what you're feeling right now. So just thank you for that, yeah. um, to be willing. The other thing I just want to ask you is if you could share a little bit of your process that you went through with the therapy and what sure. Andrea, ultimately what she revealed, um, right. what she believed was it all about, you know, right. what she went through. Well, Carolyn, thank you. I'm going to first address us revealing it because I will say it's it's not easy to talk about what you've been through and to show your scars. And, and especially in today's world, I think we want yeah. to always present that life is wonderful. And Facebook mm -hmm. says our vacations are great and our kids are brilliant and they're the best players on the team. But as I started talking through this process and really how many people realizing how many we were helping in it, I was also reminded of the Bible and Jesus after the crucifixion that when he first approached his disciples after crucifixion, what's one of the first things he did? He showed his hands and he showed them the scars. And it wasn't to remind him of the pain he'd been through, mm -hmm. but it was to remind him of his victory over it. And so by revealing our family scars, what I'm trying to show people is it's not to remind anyone of the pain that we've been through or the pain the Mazzaro family has been through. It's to remind him that there is victory over it, that there is another side, that when our story is beautifully broken, if it was merely broken, I would hide the story. But broken was a chapter in our life story. And thank God and praise God that the title of it is beautifully broken. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing as far as, as her trauma, one of the things that we were coached by, as soon as we read the letter, and those, it was so tough. In fact, it was a blur for the next 20 minutes. But when our daughter left the room, I think her counselor told us something incredibly important. And she said, you probably have a million questions running through your mind, but don't ask them. Don't ask any details. She will reveal what she wants to reveal when she's ready to reveal it. Because if you ask questions in her mind, it'll be perceived as if you're trying to assess blame, you, that the details are important. And for now, those details are not important. 
What's important is for her to simply know that you're there for her, that you do love her, that that love is unconditional. And she has revealed parts of the story over the last, you know, decade since, since this, we became known about it. Um, but I thought that was very sage advice not to try to dig into what happened because it didn't matter what happened. She was a 12 year old who was molested by a predator and the details aren't any more important than knowing that fact. Um, she did say afterwards, and that's just crushing to hear, but in part of her testimony now of her victory is that when she came home that night, I picked him up that night. She didn't say a word, but she said, when I went to bed that night, I thought that's it. My die's been cast. I guess I'm a bad girl. And that is anything but, but that's just listening to that evil and shame whispering. And, and, and it starts down that path because when you view yourself, when you have no self-esteem and you view yourself as worthless, you treat yourself as worthless. Counseling was huge. First of all, as I, I, I can't say enough, not just counseling for her, but counseling for the family, counseling for the siblings, counseling for us together. But it's not linear. And while we felt like we we're making progress, it was two steps forward, one step back. And one day in complete exasperation, I came home to a household in turmoil again. And I looked at my mail and there was a letter from Omahosa. The little girl from Rwanda we'd been supporting from Compassion International for 10 years. That had been Andrea's compassion child. And something when I picked up the letter made me think, that's it. I'm taking my daughter to Rwanda. We're going to go see Amahosa. And I tell people all the time, God knows why I thought that was an answer. But God knew exactly why that was the answer. But I told her she had to pay for the trip. But I said, the way you're going to pay for the trip is by volunteering at Legacy Mission Village, the ministry started by the Maziras. God had given us the great neighbors who were refugees from Rwanda, William and Bradley Mazerwa. We'd gotten to know them because their son and my son were the same age. And I got to know that William had led a, a refugee ministry, but I didn't know him much more than that. And I called William and said, William, I've got to take my daughter to Rwanda. Can you help us? Andrew would tell you later, mom and I could pour all the love we wanted to in her. And it was like a sieve. It was like water going through a sieve because it's almost like that's what parents are supposed to say. But Andrew would say later, when she began volunteering, I have something to give. I have a purpose. And it was from that point that she realized, and she will tell in her testimony, that's when I said, I've, I'm going to start living again because I have something to give. Abrali Mazira has a wonderful saying. She says, God wastes no pain if you let that pain become your passion. William Mazira, along with his wife Abrali, are the founders of Legacy Mission Village, a refugee services mission based in Nashville, Tennessee. The ministry has helped thousands of refugees from all over the world successfully integrate into American society. The Miziwas themselves are refugees from Rwanda. William and Ibrale have five children, and I'm so excited for William to join us now. Hello. Welcome to the Hello. show. Thank you. Hey, William. Thanks for joining us. Um, but as we learn more about you and your story, we know that you're truly a prayer warrior um, and that that's what helped get you through the Rwandan genocide. So kind of have a few questions towards that. First of all, would you be able to, to share a little bit um, for any of our listeners or viewers who may not be as familiar? Can you give us a brief overview of um, what happened in 1994? So 1994 genocide against Tutsi in Rwanda. I would say it's a follow-up of a long bad leadership and bad politics since we got colonized. The Rwanda was divided through ethnic groups. We have three groups, 
Hutus, Tutsis, and Twa or Pygmies. Desert group speaks the same language, and desert groups live together on the same land. We don't have a division between land tribes or land ethnics. We live together, we use the same spring. Everybody who wants to jump on power, he uses these groups. And we hate each other just for in a short period of time. Usually we live together, we share our struggling and our joy, but when it comes through politics, people divide and they kill each other. And something I can add on this, Rwanda was 98% Christian when the genocide happened. Well, it was not between Muslims and Christians, was not between strangers to nationals, was between brothers and sisters in the same country. In this country, in America, the probably the most war this country has seen is the Civil War. It would be interesting to know the percentage of the, the Northerners and South people here who would have considered themselves Christians as well. So it's just this reminder about how um, politics can divide and tribalism can can really truly lead to death. Um, I wonder if you could kind of personalize it a little bit and, and maybe share if your um, if your family was in any danger. Um, what did you endure? Um, tell a little bit about your journey. How did you get out? Um, and of course, how did you end up in Nashville, Tennessee? That's a that's a far cry from you know Rwanda. So uh, I mean, our family was in danger. We survived many times. And by God's grace, we came to get out of the country. We ended up in Nairobi, Kenya. And by miracle, I get way to come here. I didn't know anybody in the US. Just one person I knew was living in Nashville. That's how I ended up in Nashville. I will let you know that Nashville was unknown yeah, what was so striking to me, William, um, was uh, how really close to danger you guys really were, but how in every decision you uh, prayed and fasted and really sought God's guidance, even as bullets were flying and machetes were like, even as people were dying all around you, you stayed very focused on on praying and praying through that situation. Can you... Where how, how did how did you do that? <laughs> I mean, I would so say in October '90 we got a war in the country. So some Tutsis who fled the country in 1959 asked the country to let them come back. The government didn't want them to come. It said the Rwanda was full like a glass of water, so there was no space for them. So we started prayer groups to save the country and to save our own people. That's how we had a special prayer chain to pray for peace, to pray for the country. And things went worse. We kept praying all times. And it was sensitive that we be under the threat. And we, I mean, it was a satanic attack. It was really visible. That's how we get on prayer every day. Death began every day. 10,000 people died. I know. In 100 days, 
a million of Rwandans get killed. So nobody was sure, like, didn't have insurance about surviving. By God's grace, by God's mercy, we survived, but we faced death many times. Praying was a kind of our life. And to put that in perspective, there were only 8 million people in Rwanda. So when you say a million people died in 100 days, that's one out of eight people in the entire country were killed in 100 days. And William, you may speak too, that when William was offered to uh, asylum to come to the United States, that offer didn't extend to his family. And so, William, you might go through that process that when you were trying to decide to come to America or not, uh, the, the prayer and the fasting that you went through and trying to help uh, let God guide you where, where you need to go. We get out of the house without anything. No money, no clothes, no food, nothing. We survived. And that, that may push you to pray if you know, if you have a meaning of the power of prayer. That was enough to help you to pray more. Yeah. And we've been in Nairobi. God has been faithful to us. We got little, but we survived well. So to get a visa, we spend the time praying about it. And God opened doors. That's how we came here. My big challenge before I left my family was about where to get to church. We had to go for church service. I was not sure if I get place, I mean, if I can get where I can feed my spiritual life, that was a challenge because number one, I was not speaking the language. Number two, I didn't, I didn't know anything about here. I didn't know the culture and I didn't know where to find a church. The first church I get in contact with invited me in and welcomed me and took care of everything. They took care of my spiritual life, they took care of my, my body, and they took care of my family. I mean, I get a healing from that church and for church members. So and I was hopeless, I was under trauma. You can imagine surviving the war, surviving the refugee life and end up in another circle of learning the language because when you are a refugee you lose everything you lose your country you lose your language you lose your culture you lose your dignity you lose everything it's obviously why you have such a passion to help other refugees can you can you tell us a bit about that passion to help other refugees through legacy mission village because so the passion came from the healing I get from other believers. That healing gave me an opportunity to help. Yeah. So that's how Legacy Mission started. And we praise God, it's still working. We are really thankful for the community, for churches, and for God mercy, because we we touched many many hearts, we changed many people, and we are really very, I can say proud is not Christian, <laughs> but 
we are very thankful for what God has done for, for us. To, to add some color to what William said there, what wasn't crystal clear there is when he came to America, he had to leave his family behind, not knowing if they'd ever be able to join him. And it took a thousand days before his family was finally able to join him. And they weren't sure when that might ever be. So when William showed up at the Presbyterian Church, First Presbyterian Church in Nashville, because they were Presbyterian uh, in Rwanda, a, a friend of ours, a friend of his, met him there that first week and thought, my goodness, he needs everything in the world. And so Don approached William and said, William, what do you need? And Don said later, I'm thinking he needs money, he needs a house, he needs a job, he needs help with the family. And when he asked William, William, what do you need? William's response was, I need a prayer partner. I need somebody to pray with me. That's all he asked for. Um, and then when William started Legacy Mission Village, he invited me and Don and several others to help. And I'll never forget William's quote. William told us, I should have died many times in 1994, but God spared me. So I view the rest of the time I have on earth as a loan from God. And I'm going to spend the rest of my days repaying that loan. That's why I'm, I'm proud to serve as Legacy Mission Village chairman but more than that, that's why I was so blessed to have William and his wife lead my family back to Rwanda. So now you guys have met through, I've, you know, I know you've met through Cubs right. or Tiger Cubs originally right. in 2001. Then your stories really came together when you asked him about going to Rwanda in 2009. And then and so now you're going on that first trip with right. your daughter. So we'll talk about that a little bit and what sure. you what how that trip sort of, you know, right. opened her up again. And and just as an aside, what does Amahosa mean? I found sure. that very compelling. Right. Go ahead. Well, so that's the whole backstory to my family now going to Rwanda, led by William's wife. And we've gone through many, many things. I could take hours telling you the stories. But we finally, at the end of the trip, make it out to Murumbi, the little village where Amahosa lived. And we were always told that her father was in jail. So when we got to her house and the whole family came pouring out, I was really surprised to see her father come. But I thought, well, compassion got that part wrong. But after we came in the house and some in initial introductions, the father turned to me and he said, I, I went to jail in 1994 when Amahosa was two years old. 1994 was the year of the genocide. He said, I just got out of jail less than one month ago. In 2009, Rwanda had what they called the Great Reconciliation. They realized they couldn't keep 10% of their population in jail. So for lower level perpetrators, they said, if you confess to what you did and ask for forgiveness, you could be let out for time served. I mean, what a wonderful way of, of using a very biblical approach uh, yes. to, to the politics. But nevertheless, so he said he'd just been out a month, but he said, when I went to jail when she was two, I thought to myself, how is my family gonna survive? And I prayed to God, how would my family make it? How would that happen? And he looked at me and he said, and God sent me you. So I want to thank you for being the faithful father to my family while I couldn't be here. And, and that just hit me because I told you I went to Rwanda for all the wrong reasons, but God knew the right reasons. And I thought to myself, while my family was falling apart, we were holding this family together. And then he went on to say, he said in Rwanda, that he and his wife were afraid they'd be barren, that they couldn't have children because they had tried and they weren't able and they were losing faith. And he said, we were finally able to have a daughter. And in Rwanda, you don't name a child until after birth, much less in the Bible. And oftentimes you name a child after an aspiration or, or a, an attribute. 
But he said, after my wife and I were losing faith, but then we had our daughter, we named her Amahosa because Amahosa means the redeemer because she redeemed our faith in Christ. And I thought I could have been wandering the back hills of Rwanda looking for the tall or the beautiful or the fun loving. But of course, we were led to go there in search of the Redeemer. Mm-hmm. And we found the Redeemer in this little beautiful young lady who helped pull my daughter back out of her darkness and, and led us to that trip. So uh, it, it was certainly a godsend for us. And after that first trip, it, it just it pumped life back into my daughter and into me and our whole family and accelerated that healing. One of the most breathtaking stories is the story of you reuniting with your aunt and what happened and what that made you decide to do. I mean, if you could just share with us that story a little bit, that would be great. So we went to Rwanda for a mission trip, and that was a good opportunity for me to go back and see how is the country. And I was eager to see my mom and her two sisters, my nephew and my sister. The graves. Yeah, the graves. Yeah. So we went to the grave. And I mean, it was a hard time just of, of cries. Back to the grave, I, I was driving the Randy family. I saw my mom friend. I stopped to go to greet her. And that was another kind of shock because she's the one who told me about how my mom died. So she gave me the, the full story of the death. I, I was surprised because uh, I realized that she was killed by her step sister. This lady, parents died and my grandpa took her and adopted her. So she grew up with mom and her sisters. I knew how when I was a little boy, feeding me and helping me, I mean, taking care of me. So I was shocked to hear that she's the one, I mean, her family was one who killed my family. So we decided to go to see her, we get gift, we get everything we need for to take with us. We ended up there. That's how finally I asked her to tell me the true story. She did well. Was was scaring because she was wondering what would be what will happen after. So I told her I saw and was sitting in small sitting room. She had a, a basin in the room full of water. And in my mind came the Jesus action of washing feet of disciples. I told her to be, to make, I mean, to give insurance to your family that I'm not here for revenge, that I'm not here to do anything wrong to your family. I want to wash your feet and show to your family that I love you, I'm still your son, I'm still a member of your family. We don't have anything wrong, whatever happened. The Holy Spirit empowered me to understand that is not me. The Holy Spirit wanted to use me that I can show. 
to my aunt and to the Rwandan community and the world that reconciliation is beyond forgiveness and forgiveness is love. That's really the great uh, lesson we learned. I learned from that trip. William later said, that's why you do forgive. Because when we went back two years later, he found that his aunt had gone to church every day. She'd seen that she was felt she wasn't worthy of going to church. But after the forgiveness began going every day and the daughter-in-law who witnessed it questioned what would allow a man to wash your feet. And she said, come with me and find out. And she began to go and she had been a Muslim, raised a Muslim, but she converted to Christianity. And so William said, that's why we forgive because it saves souls. And our greatest charge in life is to save souls. Um, The name of the book is Beautifully Broken. Um, Just thinking about that title, how have both of you gone from from broken um, to beautifully broken? And how do you think others can do the same? And what have you learned about unconditional love? You can't imagine what means losing everything and get back to life, get everything and even get beyond. And that was one of the unconditional love you get from people even who don't know you, who don't speak the same language like you. That's what we're expecting when you get in heaven, <laughs> getting everything in another country. So we, and in addition of that, I was blessed to give back to others. I don't know how much you know about refugees. If you, you want to know more, you can jump to Poland or other countries around Ukraine and see how people are desperate and having somebody who brings you in, who support you, who you are and however you are and how you are, that is unconditional love. At the end, I would say about Jesus and conditional love, loving us as sinners, giving us his life and giving us an opportunity to be the children of the kingdom. That's beyond what we can't believe. I love what Legacy Mission Village is doing. Helping a family who lost hope, who need healing to get back and feel loved. I think God put William in our lives and Anamahos in our lives so that other people have been broken from a father who was jailed from the genocide, from a family who lost everything. And yet seeing their spirit and their unshaken faith that God can make us whole again. So those who are broken by life could just be made whole by Christ. That's what beautifully broken is. And and in the book, we hope people will hold on to that message that somebody, I, I hope it's entertaining and, and, and inspiring, but I really believe there might be some people who in the middle of that mess think they're stuck and they just don't realize that's a chapter. That's not the end that their mess can become a message as well. The mm-hmm. way ours has. And the final thing I'll say is William mentioned refugees and with, with Ukraine right now, we all see what refugees are. There's not a choice, but 
what's happening in Ukraine has happened all over the world, unfortunately, and continues to happen. And the people we serve, they had friends and neighbors. They had homes and neighborhoods. They didn't want to leave, but they were forced to leave, and they had to give up everything. And I think it's poignant that for me, a person who I felt like had everything in America, leaned on someone who had lost everything mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to help make me see what was important to bring us back full circle. And so the other thing I say is the reason we wrote this story was just to tell truth and to tell God's truth and to spread love. But if a side benefit of that is it's able to put a human face on what a refugee is, I will just tell you, if that face is William Mazzara and a Bradley Mazzara, then praise God that he used that as a cherry on top of the story to educate people on what it is to be a refugee. And I will tell you, if that's the definition of a refugee, I want them as my neighbors because they're the most inspiring people you've ever met that so many like William have lost everything and how you can hold on to the hope of Jesus Christ when you spend 10, 12 years often in a refugee camp. When sometimes I think as American Christians, we can't hold on to hope for longer than a day. Um, it is absolutely inspiring. So, and that if you'll hang on to that hope, that it can be a beautiful, beautifully broken, that he can take that, it's like stained glass. He can take the shattered pieces and put it back in the hands of a master to be more beautiful. And I praise God that, that our family came across a refugee family that showed us and mirrored the behavior to be made whole again. And now let's turn to the fullness of prayer. My prayer is like, I want to talk with my father. No time, anytime we can talk to him, the best is to be in constant talking with him. Connection, constant connection with him. So I talk when I'm driving, I pray when I'm driving, I pray when I'm bike, riding a bike, I talk when I'm home, when I'm, I mean, praying became like a brief. It's like a brief. When I, whatever I see, whatever I think, whatever I live, bad prayer, I take it like a constant talk to the Father, and that build a good connection and a good relationship instead of complaining, instead of crying for my needs or my material needs, it's better to talk to him and tell him whatever comes in my mind. So prayer is a talk with the Father. Oh, Brandy, I wanted to mention, I want you to just give us a little quick update on Andrea, because I know you, we, sure. we took her through her healing, but I right. want to make, you know, give her an update of where she is today and right. then tell us where we can get the book as well. Sure. Uh, well, uh, my daughter did come back from Rwanda that first trip at Chain Soul and went on and did, did wonderful in school, both undergraduate graduate school. She led three mission trips into uh, Africa while she was in college. And then when she graduated, she moved to Kenya and went to work for one of the mission companies that she had been on missions with. She's been in Kenya for seven and a half years. But the time of your question is great because this Sunday she's moving back home. So I've always wanted her to go where God led her, but. But dad's happy it led her home. 
I am not disappointed that God has called her back home. So she'll be home this this uh, this Sunday. So you can go to Amazon, look up Beautifully Broken Rwanda just to help you find it. Or they can go to our website, which is beautifullybrokenmovie.com. This proves we did a movie before the book, but beautifullybrokenmovie.com. And there's an immediate link to either the book or the movie. But I hope people will be inspired. And despite of what seems like real heavy lifting here, really the last half of the book, I think, is filled with many great praises of what's happened after our, those trips to Rwanda and the impact it's had. And I think it, people will find it uh, very inspirational. And you'll, uh, I hope that you'll, you'll close the book with a smile uh, on your face. Amen. And William, last thing for you, where can they talk about your, your ministry? How can they support you in supporting refugees? www.legacymissionvillage.org. Perfect. Well, thank you both again. And we thank you all for watching. Of course, we want you to always, every person to experience the fullness that God has for you. And part of that is going through your own brokenness, whatever that may be, in order to become beautifully broken. Because as Randy mentioned, that's where our message or our ministry many times comes from. So we thank you for joining us and listening to their story. Don't be afraid to go through that brokenness in order to become beautifully broken because God has something wonderful for you. And that's the fullness of life that we want for you every day. We'll see you next time on The Full Life.